How do you know when a movie is ready to be made? Ah, it's a, it's a great question. How do you know when a movie is ready to be made? I, um, I think there are always a series, a uh, process of steps you kind of go through, right? And the part of that is your relationship as a producer with your director, that you need to feel that they've thought it through fully, right? So it's not just the, the choices that you make, but what you're choosing not to do too. So you have to kind of work through a process of finding a common language, of finding what really matters. Like we need this, we need beauty here. We need uh, a trans transitional moment here. We, we need to make sure the plot works. So kind of that, that construction both of the script the the bigger meanings behind the film the values the references the the visual language how are you developing those two things in partnership right and it's not just partnership with you as the director and the producer it's partnership between the entire team right so after that process of going through development you know i think that often in development that language gets set right so when you get your script ready and you feel those moments are there, you're starting to then go out and, and prepare the, you know, get the cast, get the, the money in those instances. But there's a, at that point, it's a level of surface, right, that you've done, not the big deep dive. Once you start bringing in your team, the DP, the designer, the editor, the composer, the costume designer, the AD, you're doing much more deeper dive really looking at those and prioritizing those, right? Because you kind of want to walk through you, the, the decision-making process before you get to set, right? What matters? What are the things we can't let go? Once you've weighted those and prioritized those and you feel your team knows it, I think that ultimately, and this is why you need time, and something we've lost, I think, in the crunch of making beautiful work for less money. You know, as we've all had demands to, to reduce our, our budgets, time is the first thing that gets sacrificed. And when you sacrifice time, you're also sacrificing serendipity, right? You're sacrificing how do we engineer the miraculous to happen when we have so much to do, right? Thinking it through, I think it's kind of that process of how you go from definition, right? What is it we want to achieve to prioritization, which is ultimately managing complexity, right? So how, how, how do we, let's call it discovery to managing complexity to engineering serendipity. You know, that process, that kind of three-step process, only once we reach to that point can you say, are we ready to shoot? But the challenge of that is you often don't even get that luxury, right? That now people are saying, okay, you're ready, you're ready to, to make your movie, you've got your cast, you got your money. Shoot in five weeks, right? That's all the money you're going to get. And to, to work through that discovery, prioritization, management you don't have the time so when you want to add in that thing that lifts what will be good work 
to great work, good luck. You know, that's, that's part of the challenge we're living in right now. So of the filmmakers that reach out to you and they ask for advice on certain things, is that one of the things that you recommend to slow down a little bit? You know, I, I think this era is one full of contradictions, right? And the, you know, the, what, what is that Einstein line or someone like the sign of intelligence is to be able to handle two conflicting ideas. We're asked to do that all the time in filmmaking now. So I think the logical approach for uh, artists working today is on one hand to be incredibly prolific, ubiquitous, and thus radically collaborative. How do you have a generative life today when sustainability is such a question, right? Yet, because the barriers to entry, the cost of creation and distribution really have low, been lowered so much, we have this other uh, necessity. Just because we can make something doesn't mean that we should. Just because we can say something doesn't mean that we should. That you want your ideas to be able to percolate, to become something that is not just the collective unconscious, you know, that, that we're all thinking about these things, you know, we all get the same inputs, but how do you get your unique perspective on that in time is certainly the best way to do that. But you have to say to yourself, all right, I need to build my audience, I need to connect with a community, I need to move this all forward, go, 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 with that same sort of uh, piece of like, I need it to really stand out. There's so much. This is now the, the time of abundance. It means the bar has been lifted for everybody. We have to reach that much higher. And how are we going to do that when we're also being asked to be profoundly generative? When you look at a film made nowadays, can you see the ones that did take their time with certain things versus the ones that rush where it's go, 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 money's on the line and, and we can only get this person at this price for this long? It's hard. It's hard to, to say that because I think that the question of inspiration, where does inspiration comes from? You know, sometimes it comes from you just being right in the center of it. You know, necessity is the mother of invention and inspiration. <laughs> uh, other times, I think it is that, that somebody has taken in a lot, contemplated, and really thought how to be additive uh, to that. I'm not sure that you can say like, oh, this is the, the great work, they clearly had the time, and this is the thing that just burst forth, um, and it's not as great, or maybe it's greater. Like, it's hard to see. Um, sometimes energy, you know, is pre-programmed and sometimes it's just explosive. What do you see as the most crucial chapter for your book, Hopeful Film? Uh. And why? <laughs> as opposed to like identifying like a core chapter in the book, I think there's several takeaways that uh, I find that come through in each chapter. The, the first and kind of most resonant thing that I found when I read the book, you know, proofing it for myself, was what I say is there's no template.
for what is the proper way to direct, what is the proper way to produce, what is the proper way to collaborate. You have to approach each thing as a custom fit. How are we going to make it work? A lot of the things that we're taught in film schools and so on or we observe on film sets that we think often is given, if you subscribe to that notion, it's going to restrict your opportunities. The, the most case in point I see on that is decisiveness, right? We're told that we want directors to always lead, to be the person that can make up their mind on the spot and say we're doing this. And some of the best directors who've made the most beautiful movies I've been lucky to collaborate on aren't particularly decisive. They're, they're weighing the decision. They're human beings, right? They're having to figure that out. And I think they might have been overlooked if that's what somebody was looking for in a director, right? Each time, I think you really need, as a producer, to learn how that director wants to work, right? And build your structure to allow that. Sometimes they're not going to be great on set at deciding what to do when something changes. That's just who they are. And it doesn't mean they're not going to give you something truly unique that has that stamp of individuality on it. The second thing that really resonates for, for me in looking over the book is how much chaos, how much other stuff happens on movies. You know, I, I like to speak, I mentioned it today, of producing as, to some degree, managing complexity, right? That, that things go wrong. You have to accept it. That's why this production, to deal with the, the problems. But looking through my movies, each one almost had this moment where the movie collapsed or somebody went crazy or something went terribly wrong. And if I shared that with my director or if I shared that with my financier or my distributor, more could have happened, but I, as the producer and, or the producing team, you know, had to shoulder that, had to find a way to solve it, get it done. In a lot of ways, in my, my experience, that is almost the signature event of the movie, but sometimes my collaborators didn't know anything about it because I had to shield them from yet another problem that wasn't going to be about telling a great story. The final thing that in, in an overall that has resonated for me today with the book is that it's very easy to think we're responsible for everything that happens to us, right? That it's our hard work or our good ideas or our great taste that has allowed these things to happen. In thinking it through, I started to recognize the privilege that I've had, you know, starting with being a, a white middle-class male in America, that those four things gave me entree that many people are denied. It gave me access, it gave me opportunity. I also had a lot of good fortune that a lot of things that, that I was able to, to help build or launch partially came about because of a scene, because of a collective effort, right? Because we all 
wanted to go to New York at that particular time. You know, some friends have been really generous and say, wow, reading your book, it's like the launching of American independent film. You were there when it all happened. Yes, I was there. And so was about another 150 other people who were doing the same thing. It's like, oh, you discovered Ang Lee. Yeah, I discovered Ang Lee when he walked into my office. You discovered, you know, your assistants, Anthony Bregman, great producer, Glenn Basner, great film sales person. Yeah, when they walked into my office, I discovered them. But, you know, and with all the directors that I've uh, worked with, they're wonderful, super talented people, but they were always diamonds, you know? They're easy to spot, right? They give off a glow. What they needed was somebody to, you know, cut the carrots so that they really you know were allowed to be as glorious as they they could be you know i think it's really important to see that it's always a team effort it requires a bit of good fortune of being in the right place at the right time and that there are always a series of events be behind what is happening at the time right you had to get there i often felt as a young man, you know, I had dropped out of college. I was incredibly dedicated and passionate and obsessed with, with making independent movies, which I didn't know what they were yet. They were still, you know, coming into their own. But at the same time, you know, I had a family that would have taken care of me if I ran out of money and I had to come back home. I might have been living, you know, pretty spoon to mouth, but there was a place that I could go to. I wasn't on my own. I had a support structure. You know, people welcomed me when I walked into their office, right? I, I was trained on societal conventions of how to conduct myself. I was able to do those things, and that helped a lot. I was, I was fortunate. So I think those four aspects, I, I guess, are all really kind of key to how can you uh, lead a creative life? I hope the final takeaway that people have in the book is I recognize, I was, I was fortunate uh, early in my career that I made a movie that I loved that I was told was unsellable. It was a total failure, right? People looked at it and said, this film just won't sell to anybody. It's gay. It's Chinese, and it feels like a film from the 1940s, except it's gay and Chinese, right? The film won the Berlin Film Festival. It was Ang Lee's second movie, The Wedding Banquet. And my business partner, James Seamus, and I had to sell it ourselves because it had been rejected everywhere. And we took a $700,000 film, sold it for $3 million across every territory in the world at a low sales fee, which returned more money back to our investors, which made them do another film right away with Ang Lee. And I was able to, to have the, the clarity of that moment to recognize that the industry, the business, was lagging behind where the art, the artists, the audience, the technology was. We had all moved faster, and the legacy practices couldn't work for what we were doing. We were able to start a sales company based on that experience. We found a, it was at that Berlin Film Festival that I met David Lindy, who became the third partner in Good Machine.
right? Built our sales company. Through the work that he did and through that model that, that we committed to, we made 45 films that we financed ourselves without having any capital. We owned half of those movies, right? I think that if you read the book and you think about today, not just the past that it's writing about, but you start to try to say, how can I be perceptive to recognize how that situation is occurring right now, where the art, the artist, the audience, the technology has moved forward ahead of the legacy business and market practices of the industry, you, me, all of us hopefully, will start to see that there's similar opportunity where we can build a new model that can allow a ambitious and diverse film culture to not just uh, be sustainable, but to also thrive. That's what I hope is the hope for film that people find in the book. You added some personal events of your own life in the book. Anything that you weighed and you decided, you know, I need to, this is an important part of telling my story. I know it's a bit personal, but I feel that other people need to know it. In some ways, both the beginning and the end of the book were not uh, there originally. That, that question of uh, recognizing the, the privilege that I had by having a, a family that loved culture, that loved film, that valued education, that got me exposed and in a situation where I had opportunity, was, was something that came as I thought through the process. It wasn't part of the original uh, story and I felt was critical to try to see the good fortune the privilege that, that that came. I wouldn't have finished the book, frankly, if I hadn't resigned from the San Francisco Film Society. I'd been working on it. Uh, I had tremendous help from Anthony Kaufman, but I had put it aside, and it was in that break um, after I resigned, or really even in, over the last few months of that job, that. I finished the book um, and I felt that that transition that uh, desire you know the desire I had to say filmmaking will not be my profession right that I can do more good not making more films even though I think I haven't made my best work yet but by focusing on building a, a film ecosystem. And I felt this as a mission, right? I felt this in my heart as what got me out of bed in the morning was my drive. And I was very excited to move to San Francisco and to work with, with such a prestigious organization to advance film art and culture. And it was disappointing to me to kind of see that there were legacy practices that were in place that wouldn't really allow that to happen or certainly not allow it on the timeline that I initially went in the thinking I could do things. So that in some ways broke my heart, right? And I felt it was a necessary conclusion to that choice of, you know what, 
I've made 70 films. I'm at the height of my game. I feel better about making movies than I ever have. But even still, I'm gonna leave the city that I love. I'm gonna move to the West Coast. I'm gonna take a hiatus from producing because this is what's needed. And I think I have people who wanna support me in doing it, but it wasn't so easy. So I felt like I needed to have that chapter. To bookend it, to show that, that process, you're a human being. That process, yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, start to, to do the intro to the next chapter. You know, that then the decision to, to stay with the plan of trying to build a, a workable, sustainable ecosystem for a wider, diverse population of filmmakers and film lovers, to do that not in the nonprofit sector, but to do it through a startup, which is where I am now. Ted, what change or changes in the film industry would have to happen to get you back to producing movies again? I'm, I'm still producing movies, and I plan to keep producing movies for another 40 years. But I'm producing movies now out of love, out of passion. Not just because I'm producing my wife's movie, I'm producing some other films too, but because I don't want to make the compromises that come when you earn your living producing films. What I'm tremendously excited about, what I, I think is a really phenomenon of this year, of 2014, is that I think for the first time we as an industry, as a filmmaking community, have the capacity and the understanding to look at what a full film ecosystem rebuild would do. When we talk about managing complexity, I think that you can see how we've improved the process in filmmaking. An individual uh, strategy for a film and how we bring it to festival, bring it to market, uh, maneuver through the distribution mechanism. But we've always only been thinking about it on an individual basis, right? And now we're able to look at all the different stakeholders that are throughout there, see what their needs are, to see what the repercussions might be, the windfalls and the pitfalls might be for them, and to start to say, what will that look like? What would a rebuild of the, the ecosystem look like. And the core thing there is, it's not just how to get your movie made. It's not just about how to get your movie made and how to get your movie seen. It's about how to get your movie made, seen, and compensated fairly. Like those are key tenets. If we want to maintain, particularly here in America, our status is the most robust, diverse, film culture and film industry in the globe, we have to say we need to make sure that our artists and their supporters are compensated fairly. You know, that when somebody earns a startup size, a VC return on their movie, when someone can hold on to their IP and benefit from its future iterations down the road and be able to say, look, okay, those folks who, that invest, invested in Facebook, 
earned X times multiple, but th these folks who invested in my film or my body of work also earned a similar multiple. I'd be happy to, to say that that's how I'm going to earn my, my living again. You know, that, that we need, the best thing that we can do as a film culture, as a film industry, is make sure that investors earn risk-appropriate returns on their money. We need to create a sustainable investor class. We need to recognize it's a four-legged table, right? It needs all legs to stand strong. The artist, the audience, the, the industry, and the, the investors, the financial supporters. We need to, to look out for all sides of those to have a strong foundation that we can build a great culture on. That will make a good meal. Ted, you had mentioned in a prior interview that it's not just a great script, a great uh, you know, movie idea, but how does a producer and director know that they want to work with each other for two years, five years, six years? What are some of the things that you've said in your mind that this is someone that's right for me to work with, not just a great script? I, I think even that question kind of shows what a challenge collaboration is, right? In that, it's so easy to think, oh, this person has a good track record, this person has a good script. But what you're saying is this is a long-term relationship where I need them to be supportive of me and I need to be supportive of them. I need, need to be able to recognize what they're doing and I need them to recognize what I'm doing, even if we don't know how we're balancing that yet. I think there's that question of personality and chemistry in terms of any relationship. You know, are we going to enjoy having dinner together over the course of these next three, five, seven years. But then there's also what the joint project is. What is it in this script or this movie or this story world series, whatever one might be doing, what are the big ideas and can they sustain me? Will I find them as intriguing to talk about years down the, the, the road? I can't look at movies as products. I can't look at movies as only profit generators, right? I look at movies as essentially community organizers, right? How people are going to come together. What are those ideas, themes, characters, objects of beauty, you know, objects of desire? What does it encompass? that's going to keep us, you know, firing on all c c cylinders, synapses, uh, across, you know, the, the period of working on it. To, to, to make a movie, you need the, that mix of both, you know, mad genius that inspires, strong leadership that brings us forward, careful diplomacy that knows how to make sure that each side is represented and their needs are surfaced and fulfilled. And ultimately, friendship and joy, right? You know, that, you, that when something moves beyond a job, when it becomes a core aspect of your life, which I think every film is, 
you better be receiving pleasure from that. You, you know, whether they're new ideas, whether they're taking you to new places, whether they're introducing you to new people, like all those things, that's the, 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 what, why we're so fortunate to get to make movies. But you have to be able to appreciate that. And sometimes personalities make that hard. Sometimes force of circumstance, you know, financial needs makes that hard. But I think all of those things are what makes a, a good relationship work.